0: The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Let's listen to God's Word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. Due to their hardness of heart, they have become callous and have How the gospel, once it changes our heart and we understand it and we receive it, how it how it overflows into a life of growing and increasing righteousness and holiness before God. Uh, the following story I do want you to know I have permission to tell. I want to share with you uh, one of my and my wife's largest, biggest arguments that we've had. It was about 14 years ago. It was uh, when we were engaged to be married and we were registering for our wedding registry, right? Anybody else have their biggest argument ever when they were registering for items with their spouse? And at this event, we were registering. You go around the stores and you scan something, and, and this goes on your registry, and you're deciding what you're going to buy and things like, like that. And this fight, this argument was, was so big, it had, you know, the arguments were made on both sides of what we should get and shouldn't get. Uh, the voices were raised, and, and tears were shed, I'm sure of it. And you know what the argument was about? It was about throw pillows. <laughs> throw pillows. <laughs> Apparently, guys, there are more than one size of pillows that you need for your house. I learned so much about pillows. I learned about the Euro pillow, right, which is the big square ones. You have the standard size pillow, which I just called a pillow. So that's just like the pillow that you, you put your head on, the normal size. You have your queen pillow, your king size pillow. You even have those neck pillows, the the bolster pillows that go in front of everything it's the little round ones with the buttons on the side you've seen these so there's a lot of different kinds of pillows things have gotten really out of hand and i we the argument was about why do we need this why do we need to register for for pillow shams they're called shams for a reason right we don't <laughs> i mean so we're registering for different pillow shams for all these different size pillows and i thought this was a ridiculous waste of money and if you want to know who won that argument Come to our house, you'll see several different sized pillows in our home. (laughs) You and I, I say this because you and I have been made in the image of God. We've been made in the image of God. We've been created in such a way to manifest His glory in our relationships uh, throughout all of creation. But mankind fell into sin. We know this. We fell into sin, and the whole of creation was subjected to futility, as the Bible says. We've been subjected to failure. Our normal course of relating with one another is subjected to brokenness, to failure. Everything that we do is, is, is broken. Instead of living out our existence towards others, uh, towards our intended destiny and in our intended glory and design, man and, man and women, we fell in uh, short of God's glory for which we have been created. And this futility, this failure of brokenness to live up to God's glory for how we were made it results in a formation of our lives and how we relate to one another that is, that is broken, that is harmful. And being subjected to futility, it affects how we speak to one another. It, it was the cause of those, those arguments over pillows. It was the cause of, of blow-ups when, when two people living two different lives come together desiring to love one another, why there is a clash of cultures and a clash of ideas and a clash of personality we have been subjected to failure. And this re- that affects how we engage in conflict. It affects how we in- how we express anger. Our futility has it, it 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 overflows into ways that we express emotion. How we express, how we deal with with, with people in, in different ways and so many different different things in our lives, how we relationally and intellectually. So everything in our life it falls short. And how we engage in the world with God and how we engage with culture has, has, has been subjected to futility. This is the phrase that the Apostle Paul uses in the book of Romans. And so what that means is everything we put our hand to, everything we try to do to live up to God's call for us, it falls short. And we can do nothing but fail. And so as a result of this malformation, we've all been kind of formed poorly in our lives to how to relate to one another we need to relearn what it means. What does it mean to be made in the image of God? What does it mean to be rescued from a life of futility, which is failure and, and vanity and uh, meaninglessness? What does it mean to be formed by Jesus and what he has done for us? What does it mean to be a new creation? So that the way we relate to the world and creation and God and one another and our marriages and friendships and, and our coworkers workers that, that we would We would bring life into those things rather than futility. And so Paul, at the start of this section, he lets us know a new way to live and a new power in which to live, and it has arrived. So the new way to live and the new power in which to live has dawned. And it's come in the the life and death and resurrection of Christ, and this good news has been preached to us, and we have embraced it, understood it, and trusted in it. The first Adam who, who represented mankind and failed uh, to, to live up to God's law and God's righteousness is now replaced by a, a second Adam, Jesus, who did not fail where Adam failed. And so where we have been subjected to a life of being represented by Adam, which just gave us guilt and brokenness and, 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 uh, and futility, we are now represented by Christ, by faith in what he has done. And where where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. And so now the the resurrection of Christ and the gift of the Spirit, a new creation is inaugurated. And instead of being subjected to failure through Adam, we live in true righteousness and holiness in Christ. And this makes us new. We die to our old ways of living, and we now live in the new way of living. New ways of being in the world new ways of relating to one another, new ways of having a relationship with God. And the process that Paul talks about here, the process of putting off the old and putting on the new, it ought to be the discipline of every Christian, every follower of Jesus, every disciple that trusts in Christ, this, this discipline of putting off the old and putting on the new. It shows us a new way of life. This, this structure of Paul is really simple in this passage. It shows us a new way of life. He shows us the need for this life, the resources for a new life, and he shows us the habits of this new life. So let's talk first about where Paul leads us into. Why do we even need this new life? It's pretty simple. We, we need a new life because the old life was futile, as Paul says. Feudal means the, the people what we walked in the futility of our minds. It means meaningless, <laughs> meaningless. We walked in a life that was meaningless. It was subjected to failure. Paul doesn't shy away from from a firm analysis of a condition of a person apart from Jesus. Notice the flow of the first three verses. Hardness of heart leads to ignorance, which involves being alienated from the life of God, which leads to our being darkened in our understanding. With the result that we become callous, and given up to sensuality, and therefore greedy to practice every kind of impurity. And so this is the flow of Paul's first three verses. He says, this is what happens, and this is the cause of people's behavior that is, that is, that is subjected to failure. And this is what everyone walks in. The life that everyone walks in is this way, apart from Jesus. Paul catalogs here what we are without Christ. And so in summary here, what, why do we need a new life? Why do we need a new life in Jesus? Because without him, every effort to get what we want is fruitless without him. could help to get a picture of the parable in John 15 where Jesus says, I am the vine and, and you are the branches. If you abide in me, you will bear fruit. But if you do not abide in me, you will wither and die and be cut off from me and burned. But remain in me, and your joy will be full. So this, this parable, Paul is telling, or Jesus is telling us there in John 15, that's what it's like, that, that with me, you don't have a life of, of futility and meaninglessness, but a life of, of purpose and a life of, of, of glory for God, a life of righteousness, a life of holiness. You are, are made in the image of God. Jesus says, remain in me, your joy will be full. We have so many, we have so many puzzles at our house, like several, we have dozens of puzzles, maybe you do too, and there have been times where I've tried to put puzzles together with our kids, and after much frustration of not being able to complete it and find out where the pieces go, I realized that the puzzle we are trying to put together is made up of pieces from like three different puzzles, and, it, and it's kind of like that. Without Christ, we, we are putting our hand and our heart and our effort into things, and we want to see all that we want. We want to take joy in a life that has purpose, and yet we keep Hitting into uh, something that is meaningless, we keep failing to accomplish what it is we want to accomplish. And it's this kind of futility without Jesus. In real life without Jesus, we never have the satisfaction of realizing that we have mixed up the puzzles, that we cannot complete it. We cannot reach our goal. Without Jesus, our life is merely an attempt to put things together, to give answers to our grief, to find true love, to find real lasting satisfaction, but never really finding it at all. The whole book of Ecclesiastes is about this idea that it's futile, that it's meaningless, it's about a life pursued without God that ends in never finding the true things that we actually want. And so it is bleak, it is somber, it is sad, that these first few verses that talks about what is a life of futility without Jesus. And so we need a new way to live. We need a new power in which to live. Sinclair Ferguson says this of this uh, passage. He says, in three verses, Paul describes that a satisfaction and fulfillment sought in the creation rather than in the creator became the high road to eternal disappointment. It's a hard thing to read about our lives without Christ, and even our lives before Christ. You see, our problems are not merely political or economical or emotional or relational, but our problems are spiritual. If our core problems were political, God would have sent an earthly king to rescue us. If our problems were economical, he would have sent an economist. If our problems were emotional, he would have sent a skilled therapist. But because our problems are spiritual, he sends a savior to rescue us from a life of futility. So this passage is talking about real transformation, real change in our life that we can actually get, real transformation that happens in the life of every Christian. Paul encourages us to pursue this, to know this, to know what the life of Christ has done for us and how it just doesn't change us to be a better version of ourselves, but it makes us entirely new people. Having once being formed by the world and the values of society, we are now being transformed. Transformed. By Christ, We are putting off the old and putting on the new. This transformation is a real before and after story. This is the best before and after story. You know what the after looks like. In order to know what the after looks like, we need to know what the before looks like. We have to have a sense of the before. Until we realize that without the life of Jesus in us, the best way we'll ever have a life without the best thing that we can ever hope for is a life really without hope in anything that we're doing. It's a bridge to nowhere. And here's where things begin to change. As Paul talks about this old self and this old way of life, he wants us to know, before I tell you where we're going and what this new life looks like, you need to grasp what it's like without Jesus. It's meaningless. It is subjected to failure. And then the key statement he, that, he, that talks, takes us to the heart of how the Bible understands what it means to be a Christian is in verse 22. Verse 22. We have been taught to put off the old self, and picking up in verse 24, to put on the new self. So we're invited into a new way of living, of putting off the old and putting on the new. So how, how do we do this? What resources does, does God's Word give to us? What do we have that helps us, that enables us to put off the old and to put on the new? Well, the resources for a new life. Where do we go for this transformed life from the old to the new? After describing the old self, Paul says, but that's not you all. That's not all of you. That's not how you learned Christ. What a strange way to put it. He says, I'm talking about the old self, but you have learned something different. That's not you. You have learned Christ. The secret to putting off the old and putting on the new is something called learning Christ. What does it mean to learn a person? I mean, you can learn archery, you can learn swimming, you can learn the piano. What does it mean to learn a person? He doesn't say learn about a person. He says learn a person. It's not less than learning about facts. It's, it's so much more. I suppose it's the same sense of when Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew 11, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle gentle and lowly in heart you'll find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light jesus is not just inviting people who are weary and burdened and troubled to learn about his life he is he is inviting them to receive him to know him in such a way and to such an extent that in knowing him their life would be changed they would find joy they would find peace If you want to learn Christ to the point that your soul is at rest, it requires more than information. It requires a learning about Him in a sense that we come to know Him. And knowing Him deeply, we will come to trust in Him and love Him. And our lives and our feelings and our relationships will be an overflow of learning Christ and knowing Him. It isn't just knowing information and knowing facts. Change from the old self to the new self takes place as 19th-century uh, theologian Charles Hodge says, "Is when our intellect of who Jesus is and what He has done involves the corresponding feeling of adoration, desire and contentment." Knowing Christ, learning Christ, is when the facts that we have learned about Him involves a corresponding feeling of trust, of joy, of delight contentment, rest, peace. It's about embracing the truth about Jesus and delighting in Him to the point that our lives are lived out in joy. Paul tells us all that Jesus has done. He tells us this in the first three chapters. He has blessed us with all the spiritual blessings. Listen to these things that Jesus has done. Listen about the facts of His life. He has blessed us with with all spiritual blessings. He saved us by his grace. He's reconciled us to God through his death on the cross. He's adopted us into his family, once an orphan, now a child of God. He's brought us near to God, having once been very far away. He has torn down the wall of division between us and God, and and by his shed blood, he has reconciled us to the Father. And now he takes our lives which were destined for meaninglessness and he makes us new with meaning and righteousness and holiness. Have you learned about Jesus in that way? Have you learned about him? Do you know him in such a way that all that God has done for you, that you learned about in the childhood stories, in the Sunday school stories or in your personal reading, all that you have learned about him, has it brought you to a place of satisfaction? Being satisfied with God. At peace with God, Satisfied in your life. Having a joy that's truly unshakable. Where it has brought rest for your soul. Jesus says, learn me and you will find rest for your soul. Suppose you've never tasted honey. For a minute, suppose you've never tasted honey. And you are a food scientist. And you know everything there is to know about honey. You know why it is sweet. Because of its molecular makeup and, and, and the, the, what, what goes into honey, you know the science behind the, the birds taking, the bees taking the pollen from the, from the flowers and, and, and making this into something sweet. You know all the makeup of it. You know why it's sticky because you know how the protein uh, interacts with the, uh, with the sugars in the honey. So you know that it's sticky. You know that it is sweet. You could tell me everything there is to know about honey. You could tell me why it has the color that it has. But I will tell you, a child who knows nothing of those things but has tasted it knows honey much better than you. They know it. They have learned it. They know sweetness and they know stickiness of honey better than someone who just knows all the facts but has never tasted. It is true to be a Christian It is true that in order to be a Christian, you must learn facts about God and about Jesus and what He has done, and to believe in those things. Yet it's possible to know all the facts and truly not know Him, to truly not learn Him. Perhaps this is why the psalmist exclaims in Psalm 34, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. Blessed is the man or the woman or child who doesn't just learn information, but tastes and sees and knows and understands and trusts in God, takes refuge in God, not in their selves, not in their circumstances, not in another person, but knows God and has learned God, has learned Christ in such a way. It's in our tasting, it's in our learning that we come to rest in Him. So back, uh, let's go back to verse 20 and 21. To learn Christ and to be taught in him the truth that is in Jesus means to understand what happens to us when we become a Christian and what implications it has for our lives. What does it mean to be a Christian? What happens to us when Jesus dies for our sins? What happens to us when he adopts us into his family? What do we get? What changes in our life? What does it mean that he is? That we, are, that we are brought out of spiritual death and he has raised us with Christ and seated us in the heavenly places with him. What does that mean? What's going on with us? Every Christian, even as a Christian, has that old man lingering, lingering in our bodies like that old house guest that just won't leave. He has overcome his welcome, but we know that even as we are tempted and struggle with sin because of our resting in Christ, and his work for us. We're no longer represented by Adam and no longer subjected to a life of failure, but we are represented by Christ who, su- who succeeded where Adam failed and sets us free from sin to a life of obedience. And where we may disobey, where we may sin, where that old man continues to show his, his, his qualities, we know that we are, not, we are not bound to sin. We are set free from it. We are, no; we are not destined for a life of futility, but a life of freedom. So the life we now live as we seek to grow in obedience is constantly looking back to what Jesus has done for us as the source and basis of all of our growth. So when we want to grow and we want to live this new life, we always look back to what Jesus has done for us as our basis and source of all that we do. Author Tim Chester, in a book, You Can Change, says this, sanctification is the progressive narrowing of the gap between intellectual faith and functional faith. It is the progressive narrowing of a life of what we believe and a life of what is lived. That's what sanctification is. We know a lot of stuff about the Bible. We know what Jesus did. Of course, he died for my sins. I knew that my whole life. There was never a time in my life where I did not know about Jesus. I knew all the Sunday school lessons. We went to church every week. We went to a main service and then we went to a Sunday school service, and I knew the Bible. I knew every story in the Bible. I knew everything about Jesus there was to know. And I knew I could tell you that Jesus came to die for sinners. And yet it was an entirely different thing to know that Jesus died for me. I could I told people all the time in my life that Jesus died for sinners. And it wasn't until I was in college where I realized for the very first time that I was the sinner he died for. It's quite a different thing to know than to taste and to see. And so this intellectual faith and this functional faith, what has Jesus done for me? What, who does he say that I am? How does that change how I live? That's what it means to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. It's a life of becoming more and more like Jesus for God's glory and our joy. And this deliberate, conscious decision to put off the old self, what is it? What is that? He says, put off, put on. What is this deliberate thing? Well, it's, it's repentance. It's a deliberate decision to say, I'm not going to live according to the old pattern of life. I'm not going to live according to the, that old man, those old fears, those old ways of trying to earn my favor, God's favor. It's a deliberate decision to turn from our trusting in ourselves for salvation and trusting in Jesus. It's a deliberate decision to acknowledge the true destiny of the old self without Christ and to cry out for God's grace to make us new. It is believing verses 1 through 3 that says, that old man, that old person, that old self, that is what I am without Jesus. And we cry out for God's mercy and his grace. Paul tells us that we must be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And this is an important concept to grasp if you want to grow as a Christian. Renewed in the spirit of your minds. First, what does it mean, be renewed in the spirit of your minds? First, it's passive. Meaning it is something that happens to us. Rather than something that we do to ourselves. Paul doesn't self Paul doesn't say, make yourselves renewed. Go out there and renew yourself. Go out there and create new habits that will renew yourself. He says, be renewed. Let this renewal come to you. Let it change you. Yield to God's renewing work in your life. And so first, it's passive. We must realize that it's something that we receive, not something that we do. And second, it must be applied deep in our inner being. Paul has mentioned this already. We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but he says renewed in the spirit of your minds. He says, let this renewal happen deep down, deep down in your hearts, not just a transformation in, in, in your behaviors, not just a transformation in the things that you believe or don't believe or the things you love, but he says it's deep down in the things that you hope for in the places that, that are the cause of all your feelings and all your hopes and dreams. And taking those two things together, that it's passive and it, got a, it has to go down to a deep level, we understand this. The old self, our normal way of doing things without Jesus, has been formed for years by immersing ourselves in a world and culture that does not know or love God. When we look at this passage and we understand our hearts, and we really give deep thought to who we are and how we came to be the way that we are. You know why I didn't like a lot of throw pillows? Because that's not the way I was taught. You know my, why my wife did like it? Because she was exposed to those things. We are the way we are, because, and we believe the things that we believe, because we have been immersed in a, in a world and culture that hates God. And we have learned from the world how to live our lives. How do we deal with our emotions? How do we treat with others with whom we disagree? How do we enter into conflict? What does it mean to be successful? The old self, the old normal way of doing things was not formed by God. It was formed by sin. We're surrounded by it. We've taken on the values of our culture. We've learned to think and speak and act in ways that are opposed to God. And all these things have been learned at a deep and powerful level. They've formed us, they've changed us. They have a formative effect on us. Everything you do today will have a formative effect on you. The things that you watch, the things that you listen to, the people with whom you keep company, it will form you. Do not be naive to think that you, you're impermeable to those things. You will be formed. The truth is you and I have not been formed by the things that God loves. We have been formed by the things that God hates. And for that reason, Jesus came to rescue us, to release us from a life of futility, to a life of failure, because everything that we know has been formed by the things that God hates. And we want to be formed by the things he loves. And so he saved us. We have learned from the world, and Jesus says, or Paul says, you need to learn Christ you need to be formed by something new. We need to relearn everything we've learned about what it means to be human, and the result is a new self. A new self that lives our life based on everything that we are in Christ and what he has done for us. It comes as a result of yielding in faith to the work of Jesus on our behalf. If you were born and raised as a Christian in a Christian home, you might not have a definitive marker of putting off the old self and putting on the new. And that is, I want you to hear it from me. That is okay. And in fact, it's a great thing. And it's something we should celebrate. We would want our children to grow up in, in, in a life and an existence where they always knew Jesus. And they did not live a life of rebellion where they had to be dragged back into obedience. And yet, even though we grow up in a Christian home and know all the answers, There must be, for every single one of us, a time when we all say, I'm not living for myself anymore, I'm going to live for God. So there is a time for every single one of us where we put off the old self, where we live for ourselves, or the reasons for why we obey God are selfish reasons, and we say, I'm not living that way, I'm not living for myself, I'm living for God, I'm listening to Him. I'm not going to be formed by my values, my hopes, my dreams anymore, by what the world says, but in God and what he says. Now you notice I'm going to wrap it up right now, and we haven't even gotten to how to do this. (laughs) We haven't even gotten to this last portion of this scripture that says, like, okay, how do you, what does the new self look like? Because that's where we want to go. If you say, okay, what does the Christian look like? What does the Christian, how does the Christian behave? And what are the habits? Okay, take me to there. And you notice I haven't even gotten there. And I can even stop right now and I'd be fine with it. But I have a feeling that you might not. And actually Paul is not. And so he goes on. But you need to see how Paul holds that from us. He holds the behavior from us. He conceals it for a moment. He doesn't get to these things. He takes some four chapters to even begin to talk about how to live that new life. And we go there way too quick. So let's talk about the habits of new life. As God's word instructs us in this but they have to be received in the proper order. We can't get to the behaviors of a new self before talking about the identity of the new self. Being a Christian is a person being someone before we are a person doing something. Becoming a Christian is becoming a new person before it's becoming a good person. And that is why Paul has has arranged it in such a way that he has. The good news is that God, through the power of Jesus over sin and death, has freed you and I from having to live our lives every waking moment as slaves to our feelings and to our appetites. Paul says the old self is one that follows their feelings and appetites into a life of disappointment. And Paul is describing non-Christians in that way, but it may also be describing many Christians as well they've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But the new self, living out an identity handed over to the grace of God, will act differently. The new self who dwells deeply on the grace of God and who we are in Christ because of all that he has done for us, being strengthened in our inner being, growing in Christ, learning Christ. How does that apply to my hopes, my dreams, my feelings? We will act different. We will act with radically different motives let's get into some of those habits for instance the old self lies but the new self tells the truth we don't need to tell a lie to protect ourselves from hidden secrets we don't need to lie for other people to like us because because we have the riches of heaven The new self and understanding what God has done for us in Jesus Christ doesn't need to lie. We can tell the truth because we are no longer afraid of the truth being exposed. The truth being that we are broken and sinful people. But that punishment, that anger, that wrath, it all fell on Jesus. So I don't have to be afraid anymore about my failures because even when I'm weak, that is when I'm strong. When I'm weak, that's when the grace of God is real for me. Any fear that we have that would cause us to lie about anything, is removed. The old self needs to lie because they need to protect themselves. The new self can tell the truth. The old self sins in their anger, but the new self reconciles with their enemy. We don't need to get vengeance. We don't need to get revenge. We don't need to settle the score because God has settled the score. We can actually forgive God has settled the score. We were once enemies with God, the Bible tells us. Paul says there was a dividing wall. There was a wall of division between us and God. We were his enemies because of our sin, and he was a holy God. But Jesus, by, by payment of his blood shed for us, removes that wall of division and says that we are reconciled, that we are made one. When we are angry, we don't need to, when we, when we sin, well, sorry, when we are angry, we don't need to sin in our anger We don't need to seek revenge. We don't need to settle the score. We don't need to hurt others. We can forgive. We can reconcile. We can pursue that messy work of seeking forgiveness because God has forgiven us. The old self steals, but the new self gives away because they have been blessed with all spiritual blessings and no longer need to be ruled by the reputation that comes with having things. We don't need to be ruled by our image. We don't need to worship our work. We do not need to get things. Isn't this amazing? I love this, probably of my favorite of these habits. This is the one that I think is most fleshed out for Paul. He says, instead of stealing, instead of getting things, sacrifice, work hard. Why? So that you can then go buy all those things you wanted to make yourself look important to people you don't care about? No, so that you can be generous. How do God's people, how, how, do, how, how can God's people be generous? What has God done for us that enables us to be generous? He tells us that we have everything, that we have the riches of heaven, that there is nothing that we can gain that will give us satisfaction that he cannot provide for us. There is nothing that we can gain that could seek a, his approval. There is nothing that we can have that can, he can make us love, that he can love us more because of. But yet we amass, we steal, we take things because we want to look good in front of others. We want to find the pleasure and satisfaction and contentment of having things that we do not have. We covet and we steal. But when we know all that God has done for us in Jesus and all that we have, we will work hard and, and the fruit of that hard work we will use to be a blessing. Instead of hoarding our money and things, we will be generous. What else does he say? The old self uses words to tear down, but the new self uses words to build up. We recognize that God is using us. We recognize that as part of the family of God and being brought into a family, he's using us for his purposes in others' lives. And nothing is truly our own, not even our words. We've been bought with a price, and even our words can be used to build up or tear down. And Paul says, because you are new, because you're a new person, because of what God has done for you, He's released you from a life of, of, of having to save yourself and a life of meaningful, meaninglessness. Now use your words to encourage, to build up. You don't, you don't need to tear down. You don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to be better than anyone because you've been accepted by God. The old self is vindictive and insecure, but the new self is kind and tenderhearted. If you really knew who you were in Jesus Christ, if you really knew what God has done for you in Christ and all that you have and all that awaits, awaits you in eternity, there's nothing anyone can do to you or say to you that can rob you of your joy. Isn't, that, isn't it the security and confidence in knowing who you are that allows you to, to allow insults to just kind of brush off your back? Isn't it, isn't it your accomplishments that allows you to say, you know what, I know that that's not true, I'm better than that. What does God say about us? He, he, he takes a vindictive and insecure person and he, and he lavishes the grace of God on us so that when, when insults are hurled at us, we don't need to seek rea- retaliation. Nothing can shake us because we are secure in the love of God. Look at this list. These are just A few. Do you see symptoms of the old self in your life? When we dwell deeply on the gospel, the good news of God and Jesus Christ and all that he's done for us, freeing us from a life of futility and meaninglessness, do you see how it now gives us the power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being to be different people? Do you see it's all because of what he has done? He Even this overflows into chapter 5 too. He even goes more, the old self is sexually immoral. The old self is covetous. The old self is drunk. But the new self is sexually pure. The new self is is sober-minded. The new self is thankful. There is no circumstance, no behavior that God doesn't speak into and say, because of everything I have done for you, you are a new person. Do you realize what's going on here? Your life changes. Not because you're afraid of God or His judgment or to please other people but because you've been, as he has said, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You've been forgiven of your sins according to the riches of his grace. You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. You have been made alive together with Christ. And then Paul says, by grace you have been saved. Only when you change because of what happens on the inside, only when you change because of what happens on the inside of what God does to you is what makes you a Christian. Putting off bad behaviors and putting on new behaviors is morality. Putting off an old man who follows Adam and putting on a new man who follows Jesus is Christianity. To be a Christian is not about learning behavior, but about learning a person. It's about knowing what Jesus has done for us and living in light of our new identity. Only when we change on the inside. You see, God does want us to be righteous. God does desire us to do good works, but our motives must be because of all that he has done for us. Let's put off the old self. Let's put on the new self for our joy and God's glory. Let's go. Let's learn Christ together. Let's pray.